The Vienna Philharmonic is considered by many people to be the greatest orchestra in the world. In fact, if you ever get a chance to listen to some of their symphonies, you can look them up online, they are simply, well, they're breathtaking. To hear all these instruments come together in harmony with each other. Because, you see, if an if a orchestra is not in harmony, well, that's, that's breathtaking in a different type of way. That was the case with the Portsmouth Sinfonia. In the 1970s, the Portsmouth Sinfonia was touted as indisputably the world's worst orchestra. That's quite an accomplishment. But that was actually the whole point. You see, what happened was this composer took a group of 13 students who really didn't have a musical background, and he put them together as a little orchestra. It was really supposed to be a joke. They entered a talent contest, and well, it's not a surprise they didn't win the contest, but they won a lot of people over to the idea of what they were doing. Well, so they kept playing music together, and actually they continued to grow. And the premise was simple, it was this. Anyone could join the orchestra, anybody could, regardless of your musical background. In fact, if a skilled musician wanted to join, they had to play an instrument they weren't good at. You had to show up to every practice and you had to actually try your very hardest to play the music that was put in front of you. And the results was just this awful music that would probably be best served as being used to get confessions out of criminals. And I'll let you know that this week I listened to a whole one of their songs, and I counted down the moments to when it would end. But as Casey pointed out to me the other day, how could I keep that to myself? So, let me share with you just a little bit. Trevor, if you could play that for us. But enough people liked this that they kept playing music. In fact, they played in front of crowds, sometimes to thousands of people. They released an album. They were written about in Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, by the world's measure, they were successful. So what makes them different then than the uh, group like the Vienna Philharmonic? What makes them different? I mean, after all, they're both orchestras. They both have a bunch of musicians playing all sorts of instruments. They play music, music that most listeners would be able to identify. What makes them so different? Well, as we all know, the difference is that one of those orchestras has musicians and instruments that are blended together in harmony. Right? They both might make music, but only one of those groups produces music that we could say is truly sweet to listen to. By the way, only one of them is also still around, and that is the Vienna Philharmonic. And you know, believers, today you could go out and you could find many churches that are identical in a lot of ways. They might uh, have the same doctrine, they teach a lot of the same things. They might have many of similar programs, yet in some of those churches you'll find peace and unity, and then in others you'll find division and strife. Why is that? What's the difference it's that despite the similarities, the reason some fellowships are sweet and others are broken, the difference is whether the believers there are living in harmony with one another. 
You see, without love and without harmony among God's people, a church won't last. It'll tear apart. It'll divide. So the question this morning is, what does it take to be a united church? What does it take, believers, for us to live in harmony together? These are the things that we are going to consider as we turn to Romans chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out. Turn with me to Romans 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those Bibles seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 921. Page 921, Romans 15. Now, it's been a, in a few weeks since we were in Romans together, so I just want to recap where we were last time, a few weeks ago, when we were in Romans 14. Last time we talked about the fact that there are some hills in this life worth dying on for the Christian faith. In other words, there are clear doctrines and teachings in the Bible that as Christians we should stand firm on to the very end. We should defend to the very end of our lives. We should never give these things up. But Paul made clear in Romans 14 that there are also hills that we don't need to die on or be divided over in our faith. Paul referred to these things as the disputable matters of the Christian faith. Right, these would be things like uh, the practical living out of our faith in areas that the Bible doesn't speak directly on. Well, in those cases, Paul says we need to learn, believers, how to live at peace with each other as we each seek to glorify God in our lives and follow his will. Paul said another part of that is that this is about Christians who are spiritually mature, not looking down on those who are spiritually immature. And it's about those who are spiritually immature, not despising the liberty of the spiritually mature. So that's what we saw last time. It's important for us to understand that because Paul is continuing this discussion as we enter into Romans chapter 15, verse 1. So let's look there together. He says this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And we've got to stop here so we understand what Paul is saying. When Paul says, we who are strong, remember what I just said, he's talking about spiritually mature Christians. Those are the ones who are growing in their faith, who are growing in their understanding of how to live as God's people. Christians, we should all strive to become mature in our faith. But here's the thing, if we don't spend any time in God's word, or in prayer, or in church with our fellow believers, or in service to one another, these are things that if we neglect them, we'll remain weak and immature in our faith. When it says that the strong should bear with the failings of the weak, that doesn't mean that the strong put up with weak Christians. Ah, that we roll our eyes, we pat them on the head, we treat them as inferior. No, that's, that's pride. That's not what we're supposed to do. When a Christian who is young in their faith is, is struggling in an area, spiritually mature Christians need to come alongside them. They need to help them. They need to bear those weaknesses so that they can carry those believers along, so that they could grow in their faith. Our right, last time, Paul gave some examples of this. Uh, one of them is Paul used the example of how some weaker believers at the time had this conviction that certain days were more sacred than others. All right, so for some of them, it might have been the belief that the Sabbath, worship on Saturdays, was more sacred, or, or that some of the Old Testament Jewish feasts were more sacred, they were more important 
as far as worship is concerned. And Paul said, when he was writing about that, that, look, the mature believers, they treat every day alike. Mature believers understand that God is just as great and holy and deserving of praise every day. There's no one day he's more deserving of these things. Now, believer, keep in mind, that means that we should be just as excited to worship God today as we were on Easter Sunday. Because as I pointed out a few weeks ago, isn't that one of the days that many Christians today consider more sacred than another? Easter, Christmas, things like that. See, the strong believer, though, understands that God's just as great on all the days. He's just as worthy of worship on all the days. And the mature believer bears with the weakness of the weaker believer. Without causing arguments, without causing dissension. Why? Because it's not about pleasing yourself. It's not about proving yourself right in a disputable matter. It's about building up your fellow believers. Far from belittling the weak, this is how the strong care for the weak. And you might have already picked up on this, but doing all of this takes humility, believers. See, pride looks down on someone's weakness in faith, but humility stoops down to help strengthen them to lovingly walk alongside them, to help them grow in their faith and their understanding. This isn't about pleasing ourselves. It's about building our fellow Christians up. And when we do this, do you, do you see how we might be more united as a church if we did this? The first thing it takes to be a united church is for the believers in that church to be humble and in that humility to build each other up. So Paul says this in verse 3. It says, for even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. It can be, it can be challenging at times to live humbly in this world, this culture that we live in, can't it? I mean, just look around. Things like social media influencers, reality TV stars, personal victimhood. Our society glorifies self-promotion. That's what pride is. Pride builds our own selves up. But when that pride comes into the church, the church, it suffers. Now, humility, humility is what unites us together, believers. There's an old story. The uh, Duke of Wellington once went to a local church to take communion. So the Duke went to the church, and before he took communion, he went forward to the communion table and knelt down in order to pray. It was common in that church to do that. Well, while he was kneeling down and praying, an old man in the church decided to get up and do the same. Knelt right beside the Duke and started praying. Well, somebody came up and tapped the old man on the shoulder and whispered and said, you can't do that. you got to move further away from the dude. You can't sit right next to him, or you should just wait until he's done praying. But before the old man could get up and walk away, the duke grabbed him by the hand. He said very respectfully, he said, don't "Don't move. He said, no, he said, we're all equals here. And that duke knew that his title, his status, didn't change the fact that he and that old man knelt before the Lord as equals. And and although this 
this royal was an example of humility, there is no greater example than the king of kings. In humility, Jesus left his throne in heaven and came to this broken world. He was a servant to those around him. He was obedient to the will of the Father, and he died on the cross to take the punishment of all our sins and all our blasphemies. Those were laid on him. It was in love for us that our Savior humbly did these things. And believers, in our love for one another, we should humble ourselves so that we can build each other up. No matter our title or status, inside or outside of the church, no matter the strength of our faith, in humility we must bear with one another. You see the endurance, the humility of our Savior? Do you see that? But how we, can we see these things? How can we be encouraged by these things if we never pick up God's word, believer? Christians, don't you know that everything written in God's word, as Paul put it, in the past was written to teach us? That's what Paul said. Why don't you think about that? Everything written in God's word in the past was written to teach us. Why? So that we would endure, we would be encouraged, so that we would grow in our faith. But how can we grow by these things if we don't read God's word? Believers, be invested in the Word of God. Be invested in Scripture and then learn to be humble. Because when we do that, we won't build ourselves up. Now we'll build others up. We won't look out for our interests. Now we'll look out for the interests of one another. And don't you, don't you see how we'll be more united if that's how we're living? Then there's this. Look at verse 5. Paul says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that it takes for a church to be united is for the believers in that church to be of the same mindset toward each other. Just think about it. Can we be of the same attitude of mind if all of us are thinking about ourselves? Obviously not. If we're thinking about ourselves, we're not thinking about each other. And selfish thinking, well, selfish thinking, that leads to severed churches. I'll give you an example. There was a church years ago uh, that was looking for a new pastor. And so a candidate came in, he preached to the church, and then the whole church voted. And the vast majority of the church voted to accept the candidate. Just a minority of people who voted no. Well, afterwards, one lady who was in that minority, she, she moved that everybody who voted no would join with her in changing their vote so that it could be unanimous. And when she said that, one man from the church who was also in that minority said, now you listen here. He said, you better get something straight. As long as I am in this church, nothing will ever be unanimous. That's a sad thing, isn't it? Because selfish thinking like that, that, that causes churches to suffer. Believers, it only takes a few off-key instruments to ruin the orchestra. And it only takes a few believers living in pride and selfishness to tear others down and to tear the unity apart. My prayer for this church is that God would maintain the spirit of unity here by helping all of us be of the same attitude of mind toward each other, the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. What was his attitude? Jesus loved his people, didn't he? In fact, he told his disciples to love one another the way that he had loved them. 
Jesus served his disciples, and he told them to serve one another the way that he had served them. In fact, if you're familiar with the story of the Lord, you, you know how he cared for his people, how he forgave them. Believers, we're supposed to have the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus did. And when the body of believers does this, when we have this mindset, Paul says the result, oh, the result is that with one mind and one voice, we're going to glorify God. In other words, as we start to have the same mindset towards each other, as we start to seek each other's good and build each other up, well, the whole church gets built up. When the whole church gets built up, we can't help but sing God's praises out together. That's a united church. But notice how you get there. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by chance. It's an intentional thing. It starts with each believer humbling themselves and choosing to have the right mindset towards others. It starts with you, believer. It starts with you. And then the next believer catches on, and they start doing the same thing. And soon the whole body is following suit. And if we're each actively looking out for the good of one another, to love each other, to serve one another, just as Jesus set the example for us, won't, well, won't we be more united together? Ultimately, we need to be focused on Jesus Christ and not on ourselves. Look what Paul says in verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. That's a powerful truth right there. But I fear that it's one that's been misunderstood, certainly by the world, but even by many Christians. Maybe you've heard people, even professing Christians, say things like, hey, you can't tell people that they're sinners. If you do that, you're judging them. Well, and you can't do that because doesn't Jesus accept them? Didn't Jesus hang out with sinners? Didn't Jesus love on everyone? Have you heard people say things, things like this? It's the argument that people make. They say, so you should accept everyone. and You shouldn't worry about the things they do because Jesus accepts everyone. Look, it's true that Jesus does love sinners. That's obvious. It's true that we believe that you can come to Jesus Christ in faith just as you are. But we also believe that Jesus won't leave you just as you are. Jesus loves us, but he hates our sin. Jesus called sinners, the very ones that he was with, he called sinners the sick who needed a doctor. What kind of doctor sees a disease and doesn't treat it? Jesus forgives us of our sin when we come to him in faith, and then he helps us to live in righteousness. Jesus accepted us when we came to him in faith. Praise God. And praise God, he didn't leave us the way that we were when we came to him in faith. 
we became a new creation the day that we gave our lives to Jesus Christ. When we received eternal life and we became a part of his family, we who were once hopeless and far off, we've been brought near to him. We've been saved from sin and from hell. We were in a truly hopeless place before Jesus became our Savior. And you want to know something? That's how the Jews had seen the Gentiles for centuries, by the way. They'd seen them as a bunch of hopeless people separated from God. But God's plan and purpose was always to reconcile the Gentiles to himself. That's why Paul showed all these prophecies. Jesus died on the cross for Gentiles, just like he did for the Jews. And he accepts both Jew and Gentile alike when they come to him in repentant faith. So believer, here's the thing. If Jesus accepted us when we came to him in faith, despite our sin and our wickedness and our selfishness, and he reconciled us to himself, if he could take the Gentiles and the Jews who had long lived in animosity with each other and brought them into one family by faith, if he could bring so much reconciliation, then what is it that keeps us from being able to accept our fellow believers? What is it that keeps us from being able to be reconciled over our differences over disputable matters? What is it that keeps us from being able to love each other despite the weakness of someone's faith? This isn't about accepting sin. This is about accepting our family in Christ whose faith is weak. This, this, is, a, this is a small thing compared to the love Jesus showed when we came to him in faith and he accepted us into his family. Look at the example of Jesus Christ and follow it. You see, the third thing it takes to be a united church is for the believers in that church to daily seek to become more like Jesus Christ. If we were all striving to be like Jesus, don't, don't you think we'd be more loving towards one another? Don't you think we'd be more loving towards those who are weak in their faith? Wouldn't we love the church the way that Jesus does? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus, Jesus loves the church and he, he gave himself up for her. Wouldn't we be quick to be united if we, if we had the same attitude as Jesus Christ? If we followed in the likeness of our Savior? We wouldn't be so quick to be divided as Christians. No, instead we'd live in unity. Here's the thing though, believer. You can't be more like Christ if you don't know Christ. You can't know Christ if you don't spend time reading his word, or spend time with him in prayer and in worship. I believe the more that we know our Savior, the more we will desire to be like him. The more that we will model our behavior after him. And if we do this, if we do these things, won't, won't we be more united together as a church? Here's my prayer for us, church. Look what Paul said in verse 13 said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. First Baptist Church, that joy, that, that peace, that's found in churches who live in harmony with each other as they trust and follow their Savior. Now understand something. I believe that we are a church living in unity. I do. And I also believe that if we humbly build one another up, seek to have the same attitude of mind towards each other, 
and daily seek to become more like Christ, I believe that we will be a church that is not torn apart. Instead, we'll grow more and more in our understanding of God's word. We'll seek him out and pursue his will together as a church. But remember, these things don't come by chance. They don't come about by accident. That's why this is the truth for us to take away this morning. It takes the effort of each member of the church for the church to be a united church. Each member of the church must put forth that effort if we're going to be united, if we're going to remain united, if we're going to grow in that unity. So if we want that, if we want to grow in unity as a church, then we each need to do our part. We need to be humble. We need to care for one another. We need to look out for each other, love one another. We need to seek to become more like Jesus Christ each and every day. I understand that these are simple truths, church, but they're necessary ones. If we want to remain in unity, if we want to grow in that unity, these are things that we need to take to heart. So, believer, my encouragement to you is as we prepare to close and as we sing our final song is to go to the Lord in prayer and examine your heart because maybe there are some areas in your life you realize you're not living humbly towards your fellow believers. Maybe you have been living in pride. You've been looking down on other believers because, well, they're less mature in their faith. Or maybe, if you're honest, you know that you are one of the ones who you're young in your faith. You're weaker in your understanding of things. And maybe in your pride, you've been despising those who are more mature in the faith than you. Maybe you're here and you understand that you haven't had the right attitude of mind. You haven't been becoming more like Christ. Maybe the Lord is convicting you that you haven't been spending time with him each and every day and growing to know him more. Believers, whatever it is that the Lord lays on your heart, I encourage you during this final song, go to him in prayer. If you need to confess something, confess something. If you need to commit something to him, commit that to him. And then let's praise him together. And if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, if you've never given your life to him, if that's true for you, well, maybe you were hearing these things today and you were thinking of all the imperfect churches that you've heard of before, all the Christians that you've seen fighting. Yeah, we're imperfect. Us Christians, we are. But I'm so grateful for God's grace and his forgiveness and his love towards us. And friend, I want you to understand that those are all the things God wants to demonstrate in your life. God wants to pour out his grace and his love and his forgiveness in your life. Let me explain to you what that means. See, the Bible says that all of us have sinned against God. We've broken his commands. What we do when we lie, cheat, take God's name in vain, steal. You get it. We've all done bad things. The problem is the just punishment for those things is to be separated forever from God after this life in a place called hell. But you know what? In his great love, for me and you, despite all the things that we've done, Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin, all the things we've done. Three days later, Jesus powerfully rose from the dead, and he is standing in heaven right now, waiting to forgive you of all your sins, waiting to bring you into a relationship with him and to bring you into his family. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to save you from the penalty of hell. And friend, understand the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have never done that, we want you to understand that you can make that decision before you leave today. Would you pray with me? Friend, if you're here and Jesus isn't your Savior, never given your life to Him, please understand that you're separated from Him right now. If you don't go to him in faith, you'll be separated forever from him after this life. But it doesn't need to be that way. 
Jesus already paid the penalty for your sins and mine. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. And if you are ready to run to him for that forgiveness, then go to him in prayer right now. No matter what's going on in your life, admit to him that you know that you're a sinner. But that you believe he died on the cross for you. And that you believe he didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose from the dead. And friend, ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to be your Savior. And I promise you, if you pray these things by faith, I promise you on the authority of God's word, he'll save you. He'll bring you into his family. He'll forgive you of all your sins. And he'll give you eternal life. Father, for those of us who have made this decision, help us to be united together as your people. Because there are all these times when pride starts to sneak into our hearts. We're tempted to look down on others, to grumble, to complain, to be divisive, to argue about silly little things, or to argue about disputable matters in the faith. Now, I pray that you would help us to be a more mature church than that. That you would teach each of us to be humble, to build each other up so that we can build your church up. Teach us to be more like our Savior. And Father, the truth is, some of us, we, we don't even know what that means. We don't even know what it looks like to live like our Savior because we, we haven't been spending time with Him. We haven't been looking at the example that He left for us because we haven't been in Your Word. We haven't been in prayer. We haven't been in fellowship with you. And, and Father, I pray that that's true for any of us, that we'd be convicted of these things and we would choose to run back into that fellowship. That we would dive into your word every single day. That we would rejoice in prayer. We would worship you always. And I pray that as we grow in our faith, this church would grow together. Help us to be a united church so that you'd be glorified here, Father. We don't need this community to glorify First Baptist Church of Oxford, but we do want them to glorify you. So help us be united together as a family in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. But as always, we know that you love us more. And we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.